Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today we have a returning guest who appeared back in October 2021, which is episode 192. Um, James Sykes is the CEO and director of Baseload Energy, who are a fully funded uranium exploration uh, developer that has achieved uh, resounding success within the region, uh, like holding a portfolio of highly prospective uranium exploration properties in the eastern side of the Athabasca Basin. Uh, James is an established geologist and explorer in the uh, Athabasca Basin, uh, namely in, obviously, uranium uh, exploration and discovery. Um, he's been at the helm of baseload energy for the last three years. Uh, so we want to get an update from him um, as to what has been happening over the last year since we last spoke, um, and also what is happening in the uranium uh, space at the moment. Um, he's also going to be speaking at Europe's largest mining event, Resourcing Tomorrow, which was formerly Mines and Money London, uh, which is taking place in London on the 28th to 30th of November um, and serves as a unifying platform for the entire mining value chain, uh, fostering learning, uh, lively debates and providing some value, valuable networking opportunities. Um, so I encourage you to sort of register now and also receive 10% discount on early bird tickets using the code DIGDEEK10, all in capitals. Um, so why don't you head over to uh, resourcingtomorrow.com slash register uh, to uh, get your tickets now. I would also include those in the show notes accompanying uh, for easy access. So yeah, go and book your tickets now. And obviously James is going to be there. So that's welcome James to the podcast. How you doing, James? Doing awesome, Rob. Thanks very much for having me again. No, appreciate your time as well. So for those that didn't, um, haven't heard you before, um, I imagine most most of our audience has, I wonder if you can just give us a, an overview of, of yourself uh, and of your career uh, before we go into speaking more about Baseload. Okay. I think you've done a great job with the introduction as it was, but uh, I'm, you know, trained as a geologist. I've been in the industry, in the uranium exploration industry in Northern Saskatchewan's Athabasca Basin since 2006. I've been part of a lot of successful companies and I've been part of a lot of big success stories. I was part of the group, part of Denison's team that that led to the target area that became the, uh, the, Phoenix, the Phoenix and Griffin zones. I was part of Hathor Exploration and put together the geological model that suggested we were drilling along the wrong trend. And once we changed our trend, we discovered two more deposits. I was leading geologist for NextGen's Aero Discovery, which is probably the largest high-grade undeveloped uranium discovery in the world. Felt very exciting about that. And in 2020, the group, the Ore Group, which is a group of six different companies, were looking to put together a uranium vehicle and my name kept coming across their desk. They reached out, we hit it off and we launched Baseload in June of 2020. In our first drill program, we made a discovery that we call Accio. So it's been a great ride ever since, it's been a great career. I'm very fortunate and very happy to have completed what I've done and I don't intend to stop anytime soon. Yeah. Um, so obviously you've been at the company now for 
three years, or just over three years. Uh, what are some of the achievements that you've made um, that gets you sort of out of bed every morning and push the company forward? Obviously, as I mentioned in the introduction, as you've mentioned, obviously you've your experience within the Athabasca Basin and obviously around uranium. But what keeps, what drives you, what drives you to get up every morning and uh, um, see another day within the uranium sector? I used to say discovery because that was the big, the big key for everything. Uh, I've got about 500 million pounds of uranium discovery to my name, but with baseload, we kind of changed everything. So we developed something called the Athabasca 2.0 thesis and that we're looking for near surface, high grade basement hosted uranium that can be open pitable. So now it's not more about the discovery. It's more about the discovery of a mine. And that's really what gets me going is with our Accio discovery, I want to see this go into development, which fits perfectly with the market scenario as it is today. We think that Accio is a potential open pit uranium mine that can that can bring uranium to the future, uh, to nu to nuclear deployment in the future. So, yeah, that's that's definitely the big thing gets me up in the morning. That and kids. <laughs> yeah, same here. Um, what significant results or new discussions have you made since we last spoke? We've expanded Accio, and we, I guess when we last spoke, you said it was what, 2021 or 2022? Uh, 2021. So, so nearly, nearly, nearly two, year, two years ago. Yeah, we, we've put in close to 30,000 meters of diamond drilling since then, and we've expanded Accio. Accio is now over 300 meters long. It's over 150 meters wide. There are 11 different zones. And the highlight prior to this year was that we had discovered mineralization within 25 meters of surface. And that's, you, you have the overburden on top and then you've got basement rock and that basement rock is mineralized. There's no other deposit out there really that has that shallow mineralization. And it's, that zone is typically, typically high grade. So we advanced that, we have drill delineated that. But it wasn't until this year that we went to another zone that we already had modeled. But we've also now found that that zone as well starts at the, the overburden basement contact within about 35, 38 meters from surface. Very exciting. Now we've got two zones that start at that overburden contact. And that's overburden for those who don't know. But if this is a geology show, you should know what overburden is. It's, it's loose, consolidated sediments that were deposited by the glaciers. It's stuff that you can easily scrape off the ground. It's not a mining scenario. It's an earth-moving exercise. It's very easy to move that material and get down to your basement rock, which is where, uh, where you would have mineralization starting. So with two zones now at that contact and being that shallow just makes Accio that much more lucrative. Uh, we've also... You know, we've also discovered a, another sub-parallel trend to, to the Accio system. A little bit of sniffs, but the size of the alteration sequence that we're seeing there and having mineralization within uh, the more preferential alteration is potentially indicative of another system. We call that target mirror because it geologically mirrors Accio. And we think that there's potential along that trend as well. So it's been, yeah, it's been an exciting two years. Lots of, lots of advancement. Yeah. So how far can Hakio get? How big can it get or within that whole region? 
where there are a number of factors like we're, we're still open a little bit to the north but that trend so accio the project boundary for accio is adjacent to an australian company 92e and they've got their gmz so accio itself in with the gmz is quite an extensive system uh, at least 500 600 meters long we have Accio that is Accio is open to the southeast and southwest for us. It is also well, it's also open at depth, and that's one of the things that we are going to investigate. We've focused a lot on the the shallower mineralization. We have seen, and that's down to about two hundred meters. We've seen mineralization as deep as about three hundred and twenty meters beneath the surface, and we've never tested for it just because drilling costs a little bit more when you have to go deeper. So that's the potential there as well. We've also, we have sandstone on the eastern side of Accio. And I bring that up as being an important um, important target area because sandstone, yeah, that unconformity between the sandstone and the basement rocks is typically where you have really high grades of uranium mineralization in the Athabasca Basin. That's where you get your 5% material, your 20% material. And we've never tested the structural controls on that on that sandstone target we put in a hole this year oddly enough we hit nothing but basement rock within 50 meters of our deepest sandstone hole which had over 100 meters of sandstone thickness so we know that there's a huge fault that just rips right through the area and offsets the the sandstone and again we're looking in in the athabasca athabasca uranium it's all fault controlled so we've got two preferential faults within that sandstone area that could have potential mineralization associated with it so that's that's another target in itself. Uh, Accio is part Accio is part of the Hook project, and the Hook project has a number of of geophysical targets that we expect to drill in the coming years. Uh, one of them we had planned for this year, but given the way, uh, just given that the market wasn't fully taking off, we didn't want to we didn't want to have a success in a market that was still not fully attentive. We'd rather have a discovery when, when the market is there and the investors are all pouring into uranium. And then you have this success and you, your stock and your value, your company valuation can just soar. So we'll look at some of those targets next year as well. Yeah. Lots and of how potential. Does, yeah, certainly. And how does Hakio can, uh, obviously compare to other discoveries within the region? It's... Different, but similar to other open pits that were that were previously mined, and that that's the Athabasca 2.0 thesis. Now, there are a number of discoveries in the Athabasca Basin that are associated with that unconformity between the sandstone and the basement rocks, and a lot of those discoveries have not gone into production, probably won't go into production for a very long time, unless you have modern technologies that can that can extract the ore and i reference denison mines and their isl um, on on phoenix that they're doing and also arano and their saber technology which are two innovative technologies to address this problem otherwise you can't do conventional mining in the sandstone typically because of the, the water infiltration rates are far too high and that's so that that poses a big problem so we can't really compare ourselves to those unconformity deposits because, again, they, they sit there for 50 years, for for 20 years plus. Unless you've got a Cigar Lake or a MacArthur River, which are over 20% U308 grades, those go into production. But I also note Cigar took over 40 years to go from discovery into production. 
it's a long time for investors to benefit from. If you look at the comparable uh, the comparable deposits to Accio, which would be the, the basement-hosted, near-surface, open-pit style of deposits. Yes, we've got similar grades, we've got similar sizes, and again, that, that open-pit mining history exists. A lot of the open-pits previously all built the mills, and that's an important point to point out. Accio doesn't need a mill, because the mill's right down the road, uh, the Key Lake Mill for Cameco and Arano. So this, this would just basically look like a satellite deposit for that mill. That mill is established. Otherwise, uh, Clough Lake had to build the mill, Rabbit Lake had to build the mill, and they had to be they had to be certain size. But grade-wise, Accio is very comparable to a lot of those deposits. Um, why don't you just give us a, an overview of the uranium market, um, I suppose not just in Canada, but globally as well. It's hot. It is the hottest it has been since Fukushima. Maybe even maybe even better. I, I would definitely say the fundamentals are the best that they've ever been. And I've heard that from people who have been in the industry for 40 plus years, not even on the exploration side of things, but in the on the trading side, the uranium trading side, the market side. This is an extremely hot market. And it's really dominated by the lack of supply. And increased demand. It's we're seeing the highest nuclear demand globally ever, and a lot of that is spearheaded by China. China keeps building out five reactors a year, and they have no intention of slowing that progress down. You've got India who's looking at expanding. A lot of European countries have also been looking at expanding. Uh, Sizewell C, for example, in the UK, just got a significant amount of funding as well. Globally, nuclear demand is growing significantly. But yeah, that's that supply side just isn't there. When you compare when you compare the previous market run between 2005, 2007, 2008, there were a lot of a lot of companies in different countries that were producing uranium. Those companies and those mines are all basically on care and maintenance right now. Kazakhstan's Kazakhstan has a a much more controlled approach to their um, to their to their guidance and their production. Cameco just started ramping up last year, uh, the year before, so they're they're slowly getting back into things. But they've also noted that that their production won't be as high as what they estimated it to be for for the end of this year. And then you've got a lot of the African countries or operations in Africa that are hindered by again care and maintenance longer lead times you've got the coup in niger uh you know even the the war in russia has has affected russian supply so there there's a lot of fundamentals there's a lot of uh, variables at play that are really making this uranium market look hot really hot and this we've just spot price has just gone above 60 dollars. that hasn't happened in in quite a while but that is not enough to incentivize new mining. Uh, you, you need to see $70 a pound, $80 a pound, U308. And typically that's contract price you want to see, but spot is the indicator that, that the retail investors can follow. So when you see spot above $70 and you're getting closer, $80 a pound, that should incentivize previous miners to come back into play. A lot of ISL operations are starting to move forward as well. So they wouldn't be doing so if the market wasn't there. It's just everything is starting to take off. 
This is very early in, in, in the complete run. And hopefully this is going to be a, a prolonged run because again, that, that demand is so high, we're going to see a lot of, of uranium output required. And as slow as, as it is right now, it's got to pick up. Obviously the demand's there. How far supply are we behind from, like you said, from back in uh, 2002, I think you said, how far are we behind in, in the supply with the, the demand obviously increasing? I would I would personally say quite a bit. Like a lot of the utilities should have inventory to keep them going for a while. But you have to remember there's a lag time from, from mining into nuclear fuel production. It's not a quick click of the fingers. It's not like gold where you can just... And you do it all right at the mine site. There are a lot of different steps that you have to take on the way. That's typically an 18 to 24 month time frame. There are bottlenecks in the conversion and enrichment factories or enrichment factors. And that can also that can also put a supply shock on, on the utilities as well. So that everything can get bottlenecked in those processes because they have limited capacity. So if, if the utilities aren't coming back in a, you know, in a, in a sustainable time frame to, to get the, to get the nuclear fuel, then there will be bottlenecks. There will be a huge pandemonium to get as much uranium produced and turned into nuclear fuel as possible. And things will, things will take off. I, I can't put a number on, you know, how, um, how much supply we're, we're behind by, that it varies quite a bit, but that number does continue to grow as as more inventory is taken off the spot market, which is another factor in this market that didn't exist previously. Now you've got yellow cake, you've got uh, the spot with the spot, and they've been buying they've been buying uranium off the spot market, which and they're keeping it in inventory. You know, who knows? Who really knows what their their plan is down the road? But with all of that taken taken offline and not accessible to the utilities, it really puts a it does put a crunch on the supply side of things. Yeah, um, and apart from obviously what you've just discussed, what other challenges do you see the the actual uranium market facing in, in the short to medium term? It's bringing that supply back online, for sure. Trying to get trying to get the supply to meet the growing demand, because every new reactor, every new restart that's happening in Japan requires twice as much uranium as it would when they're operational. Now, it's almost like flicking a light. When you flick a light, the electricity just jumps and then comes back down to a to a stable level. Nuclear is the same way. You need twice as much fuel to to start all these reactors. So demand is going to peak. It's going to be very high. And then it will it will level off, but with peaks throughout. So if the yeah that supply has to come back, and that will be that will be the biggest hindrance. The other one is just education on the on the public side of things. Nuclear demand, nuclear energy does not have the best reputation in the public's eye, albeit it's the greenest, safest source of baseload power globally, and has been for since the fifties. We've had one major accident, which was Chernobyl, and that was a flawed design. Yeah, the, the 
the outcome of that was disastrous. There's no doubt about that. Fukushima was was terrible, but quite contained. Uh, nobody really died from from radioactivity in that. Uh, you had the the populace did have to leave the area. But I, I know like if that was an oil refinery, what would have happened with that tsunami? You would have had oil spilled everywhere and the cleanup would have been just as bad and the environmental outcome would have been just as bad. So nuclear does get a terrible reputation on the safety side of things and the health side. Just what people don't understand, they fear. However, it's, it is the safest. If you, if you look at a lot of renewable energies today with wind and solar, there are more deaths and more injuries related on an annual basis in those industries alone globally than there is in nuclear energy in 10 years. It's the, the numbers speak for themselves. It's just, yeah, you, people just have to get over that idea that, oh, this reactor is going to go critical. It's going to blow up. No, it's not because they're not designed like that anymore. Again, Chernobyl was a flawed design. It was a very early design. They don't build them like that. Even they've, they've come out with safety tolerant fuels that mitigate and prevent these, these runaway um, nuclear chain reactions. So reactors can't go critical anymore. Did Fukushima explode in a, in a horrendous nuclear explosion? No, not at all. So they are, they are much safer now. You mentioned obviously finance coming into the, the uranium market. What would you say the catalysts are for money to come start flooding in to, to the industry? Is there a certain trigger point in your opinion? Yes, and we're seeing it now. The money is definitely starting to flow back in. We've seen some pretty big deals signed for for companies uh, like Global Atomic. They've been funded for for advancing DASA and and putting that into production. Uh, NextGen just secured hundred million dollars for for their project. Uh, we're seeing some of the enrichment and conversion facil facilities also getting funding. So that, that money is starting to roll in now, which wasn't there even two or three years ago. It's it's come and gone. In 2021, the money was available from, from everywhere for everyone because, again, Sput was buying a lot of pounds off the open market. They were driving up the, the spot price, and people saw that as encouraging and started just throwing money at it. We're seeing that we're seeing those same spot price levels now, and the sophisticated investors, the the market makers, the the funds, they're all seeing that same price value now. You know, we're, we're even seeing it in the news. Uranium wasn't talked about for for quite a while, but now we are seeing it in the news. You're seeing it on CNN. You're seeing it on Bloomberg. You're seeing it on Financial Times. It's being mentioned. So that. Yeah, that, that basically means that the sentiment is there, the awareness is there, and the money is is flowing in. So it's starting to build momentum now. So when do you, and I'm like asking for a prediction, but when do you think roughly uh, the, the price will get to $80? $80? Very good question. I don't have a crystal ball on that, but looking at some simple arithmetic, spot price jumped up five bucks in August. That's a huge jump from $55 to $60 in one month. That's just shy of 10% increase. If it were to continue on that on that uh, momentum, we, we could see $80 by the end of this year. I don't think it will. I think it'll kind of peter off, 
But by the end of next year, I don't see why why we wouldn't see $80 a pound. Yeah. Um, and lastly, just wondered if you can give us an outlook of baseload energy sort of over the next six to 12 months, what your plans are. Well, we completed our summer program. We drilled 7,500 meters and 40 drill holes. We expanded a lot of a lot of mineralization at Accio. We, you know, we we did hit some some newer zones. We hit some pretty high grades in areas that there was no drilling previously. We expanded in some of the zones that were previously modeled that they're they're thicker than we originally thought. So all those results have to come out. We haven't we haven't released any assay results yet. They're still coming in. So between now and the, the end of the year, we will see some assay results coming out. We are doing some additional work such as mineralogy. We'll be looking at doing some, some other de-risking projects down the road uh, to see recovery rates and things like that from the ore, uh, just, as, just as little bench scale tests. So we'll, we'll, we'll have some news coming down the road uh, for sure. By Summer next year, we will definitely be back at Accio. We'll be back at Hook. We'll do some exploration drilling, but we've got some further follow-up to do at Accio as well. When we get around to that, probably around May or June of next year, uh, what are we going to do in the wintertime? That's a question that is that we're debating internally at the moment. We do have some geophysical surveys that do need to be done on, on other projects, but whether or not we want to get to a, another project to drill that off, um, there's we would like to get to our shadow project to to drill on that one so that could that would be a number one contender for a winter type of project uh, but permits and, and consultation need to be done for that otherwise uh, we'll kind of hold off on the catharsis project for now and we'll look we'll look to catharsis in the coming years but all all focus for now will remain on hook and accio as as the forerunner James, thank you very much for giving us an update on uh, Baseload Energy. Um, really appreciate your time. Uh, all the best for the remainder of the year uh, going into 2024. And perhaps we can do another updated podcast uh, sometime next year. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. You know how to find me. And thanks for the opportunity, Rob. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Um, thank you for listening to this episode. Um, please, as always, uh, appreciate your continued support. Please share this episode amongst people or co-workers, ex-workers within our industry um, across the world. Um, and also, especially with the uranium, there's obviously a lot of different perceptions out there. Um, maybe some of them are bad. So appreciate if you can um, share this episode with people outside of our mining industry, um, just, to, just so that you can educate them on on uranium because it will be coming into i suppose in society more and more as james has mentioned so um yeah please share this episode with people outside of the mining industry also uh, to help educate them so share it with next the time, german government and the, and the german government <laughs> any any particular reason for the german government oh they've they've taken away all of their nuclear energy and now they're seeing huge huge costs for electricity they don't have they don't have the electrical supply anymore to to meet a lot of their demand like they, they from what i keep seeing they're they're in a hurting situation now now they're ramping up coal which is counterintuitive to to green co2 they're importing nuclear energy from other countries it's like it's it's okay if other countries do it but they get upset when when they do it i don't know nothing makes they're, sense they're, in, in that they're decision doing they're doing everything different to what the rest of the world are doing. Yeah.
Yeah. Okay. So, and the German government as well. Hope, hopefully they're watching this as well. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.